welcome to this week's episode of Tour Guide Tell All. I am not a Rebecca. This is Candon. I am, however, joining Becca's episode. Um, full disclosure, if you can't tell, I am sick, uh, which, to be honest, I'm I'm mostly annoyed about because I never leave my house. I always wear a mask. I wash my hands a thousand times. Both of my kids are home from daycare. Like, how did this head cold find me? Um, so I'm, I am more inconvenienced than uncomfortable. But I really wanted to make sure that I joined Becca for this episode tonight, even if it is just to throw in random bits of trivia here and there, because I feel very strongly that George Westinghouse was an amazing human being and more people should know about him and that Thomas Edison was a jerk. Uh, and I am positive that Becca agrees with me and uh, she will give them the full uh, just justice treatment in this episode, uh, but I will be here with my herbal tea and Ben and Jerry's to make sure that happens and to share with you some things that I obviously am very passionate about with these two gentlemen. Uh, so without further ado, Becca, can you tell us about uh, these men we were chatting about tonight? Of course. I will mention, you can tell listening that we do not record this together because if Cannon had Ben and Jerry's, I would be eating it right now. If she was like next to me, I'd be eating it with my spoon, cold be damned. I would be eating it. <laughs> um, so yeah, we are uh, launching into October. It's fall, it's spooky season. So we wanted to take a little turn with our October episodes and talk about some stories that can be a little bit scarier, a little more frightening, maybe uh, the kind of thing you'd wrap yourself in a sweater and listen to. So a little bit of a warning on this episode, we are going to get to a kind of genuinely scary moment. And we'll give you a little heads up on that. But um, we're talking about two men, uh, two great titans of American industry and this conflict. And the reason we talk about it is it actually overlaps really beautifully with a tour that we do in Washington, D.C. on Embassy Row. So if you're walking up Embassy Row, you see all these beautiful mansions, and a lot of them come from the Gilded Age. But there's one mansion that's actually the oldest mansion still standing in the DuPont Circle neighborhood, and it's the Blaine Mansion. It was constructed in 1881. It was built um, for uh, a sex secretary of state, James Blaine, who was also a longtime congressman and three-time uh, candidate for president of the United States. It was designed by a man named John Frazier, who would work on completing the Washington Monument. Blaine spent something in today's money, like $1.2, $1.3 million to build this beautiful mansion. And then he lives there for like two years and then he sells it. So it's really striking. We'll put a, a link to it in the show notes. Big, beautiful red brick mansion. The Blaine Mansion was the home of George Westinghouse, uh, his Washington, D.C. home. So Westinghouse buys it in 1901, so about 20 years after it was built, and that's his D.C. residence for the last dozen or so years of his life. And George Westinghouse, I agree with Cannon 100%. He is like a man who does not get enough credit. He's a true American icon. He is one of our most important inventors and uh, innovators and engineers, and he gets so overshadowed by other people that we'll talk about. Out. But his story is amazing. He's, you know, grows up as a young boy, very kind of modest upbringing. He's super smart, very clever with machines, even as a kid. He enlists in the Civil War when he's 15 years old. He fights for all four years. Like, 
that was a hard war to survive all four years to me is bonkers. He was in the army and then he was like, okay, I've done this for a while. Now I'm going to join the Navy because that's like a new challenge. So he fought in two branches of the armed forces. And then when the war is over and he's 19, he patents his first invention. And from then on, he's just like a patenting machine. He's going to have more than like 300 patents in his lifetime, air brakes, railway systems, signaling and track improvements for railroads. He does a little bit of everything. Um, did you know, here's my first random trivia fact, going back to his, um, kind of his first and, and biggest, well, biggest is subjective, uh, invention with the air brakes. Do you know how trains used, like, what, what the braking system was before him? Like putting blocks of wood on the track? No, they had, like, these guys who had to run from car to car to manually put the brake on every individual car. Uh, Westinghouse was... I guess near some railroad tracks at some point, and he saw these two trains where the conductors saw each other. They knew it was coming, and they couldn't they couldn't get the trains to stop in time. But I I had never like the compressed air brakes. I would have never come up with. But I didn't realize that before that they just ran along the train and had to like manually stop each car as they went, which is just insane. We're obviously his history majors and historians, which is why we're not digging into the uh, logistics of Westinghouse's inventions. Literally, all I know is that, like, they're called air brakes, and I assume they use some sort of air to stop a rail, like a, oh, Becca. a train. Today, on my, my cold bed, uh, because I could not nap, but also needed to rest, I, like, was reading some of his patents, which only 10% made sense to me. Uh, and then I went on to a whole deep dive into the incandescent light bulb, which I'm sure we'll discuss later. But I know a lot more about the light bulb than I ever needed to know now. Uh, but his patents were are, were very interesting. So I, I do now know how railway air brakes work. As he's growing his business and as he's growing his uh, industry, he gets an interest in gas distribution and telephone switching, which doesn't sound all that exciting. But as he's dealing in this, he starts to get really interested in the relatively new field of electrical power distribution. So around 1883, 1884, Westinghouse decides, I want to get into electricity. And at this point in the United States, there's only one guy who deals in electricity and that's Thomas Edison. So Westinghouse puts himself on a path to come up against one of the most insane men in American history. I agree with uh, the, I don't want to say insane Edison. I just, he like jerk just seems like such a good word to describe him, which I had no idea growing up. I had never heard of Westinghouse until I started leading the DuPont tour and they were like, oh, here is this awesome house, it's old, and here are some cool people who lived in it. I'm like, oh, I've heard of Edison, never heard of Westinghouse, and then that was it. Uh, but I never knew growing up that Edison was just, like, not a nice guy, and it turns out he wasn't. It's one of the greatest propaganda campaigns, I think, in American history where Edison is considered sort of the greatest American inventor. He is prolific. There's no way around it. The man patents something like over a thousand inventions. His record for inventions was just broken a few years ago. Okay, but here's where I think he's a jerk. Did he actually invent most of those? No. No. He buys and steals. <laughs> Which I didn't know. I did not know that as a kid. I didn't know that. I Maybe I... It was either this tour and the whole the whole current thing and learning about Tesla, who I know we're not going into. 
I'm not 100% sure where I really learned about the darker side of Edison, but I'll always drop my pop culture thing, which is Bob's Burgers, which is one of my favorite TV shows ever. And they do an episode on Edison. And it really was like, to me, I always take this, this mentality of like, how much of this is true and started digging in. And I was like, oh, all of it's true. So let's talk about Edison. He is prolific. He certainly is, does a good job of promoting himself as a great American inventor, but he is a bit of a jerk. He's also a totally like unusual figure for the era. He is a very outspoken atheist and agnostic at a time where that's really not the mainstream. He's a vegetarian for most of his adult life, um, dabbles in veganism to a point. He's a very strong pacifist, which I found really interesting. During World War I, he would only work on defensive weapons. He was very clear about that in his work. And he was very proud of the fact that through his life, he never created anything directly that was a weapon of destruction. So, you know, as much as he is this man who's always out there to make a buck and to buy what he can, he never went into the arms race, never sort of took money to be a defense contractor in that regard. And he opposed the gold standard and any debt-based money in the United States. So he's, he's, he's a conundrum. He's a weird dude. Uh, he's obviously really uh, unusual as a child. He's a very strong entrepreneurial streak as a kid. Um, we're not going to go into Edison's whole life because it's really fascinating, but he's like a bit of a con as a child. He realizes he can buy newspapers and resell them at a higher rate, and he realizes a lot of ways to make money quick. His earliest sort of legit career is a telegraph operator, which obviously is going to influence the rest of his life. He's also going to start experiencing deafness as a child, which is um, going to be kind of a benefit for him. He sees his inability to hear as a way to focus really intently on his work. And conveniently, it's a really good way to pretend that you didn't hear part of a deal or didn't hear part of a contract. And so he would fall back on his deafness constantly. I cannot even go into the list of things that he invented or claimed to invent. They're endless. But of course, like you were mentioning, Candon, the accusations of how much of his work was bought, how much was stolen. He spied on all of his competitors. He was known for buying out research assistants and anybody he could. He had very unethical business practices and insanely outrageous public relations, which we're going to get into. But as we get to 1890, Edison is king in the United States. Like he is the king of invention and he is electricity. When you think about electricity, you think Edison. He's the main man. He created the incandescent light bulb. And I don't know if you want to give us some fun facts about the light bulb. Okay, here's how you have to technically say it to be accurate as a historian. Thomas Edison invented the first commercially viable incandescent light bulb. So there were at least 20 inventors before him. Um, and they used different types of filaments so they didn't last very long. So Edison's was known as the 13-hour bulb because it lasted for 13 hours. I'm trying to think today about what my life would be like, like pandemic life, if I had to replace a light bulb every 13 hours. I, I, I had the exact same thought <laughs> after I read that. I was like, I wonder how long that light bulb and that, because we have this one lamp we just leave it on. It would have just been like, don't turn it on. Don't turn it on. Yeah, never. Only if you need to. Um there was, but there was some guy in Italy who invented like a 50 hour light bulb, but then kind of just left and never tried to market it. But whatever, 20 people before him worked on the incandescent light bulb, but he had the one that like you could actually sell. Um, and he 
I don't know if it was him or he at least patented whether he did it or stole it from someone else. The corkscrew. So how like you screw in the light bulb. He gets Westinghouse with that at, at some point and Westinghouse tries like one that just pops in rather than screws in. Um, at least that's how it was in the current wars. I, that is not something that I looked up. Just I assume they wouldn't lie to you about that. That was probably a bad assumption. Uh, on my I part. do believe that Edison's the first one to do the screw base or whatever you would call it. But yeah. Yeah. So technically he invented the first commercially viable incandescent light bulb. That's how you have to phrase it to be historically accurate. A good thing you're here. So Edison's kind of the electrical king in the United States, though. He's on the forefront of either innovating or purchasing anything dealing with electricity. But here's the thing about incandescent light bulbs and phonographs and all these things that you want to run on electricity is you need to get electricity from place to place to place. And this is where Westinghouse and Edison are going to come to blows. Edison is advocating for a power delivery system known as direct current, or DC, as we'll probably refer to it. But he's facing a lot of pressure and competition from alternating current arc lighting systems, AC. So if you know the band ACDC, that's what that's a reference to. Um, AC is more popular abroad, and it's what's being developed and innovated abroad, and it's what Westinghouse starts to invest in. Westinghouse sees that alternating current is successful other places and he believes it can be successful in the United States and so he's going to buy up a lot of patents he's going to innovate and Westinghouse is going to start promoting himself as an alternative to Thomas Edison and his direct current system and this brings us to what we have referred to and what the press called as the current war or the war of the current so this becomes kind of a big public relations fight. It becomes this sort of war of ideas. Westinghouse started developing his transformers in the late 1880s. Um, the idea is that alternating current can transmit electricity over long distances because it uses thinner and cheaper wire. And it steps down voltage at the destination so that the user can use it. So it's like high voltage as it travels and lower voltage at the point. This is really important because what Edison has, his direct current, it's really designed for short distances. And so it's great if you live clustered in a very densely populated urban area, but if you live out in the suburbs or you live out in the rural area or you're in a city that's further away, um, AC starts to look really, really um, interesting and it starts to look really profitable. And I, I find it really interesting that uh, Westinghouse is very open to the European ideas and bringing them to the United States where Edison's really sort of resistant to it. I just want to make sure that when we say, you know, densely populated area versus suburbs, Edison's can travel like a mile, if that. So like a, a New York City block could work. But then if you wanted to go to the other side of Manhattan, too bad. Um, so it, it was very short distances. And Edison recognizes that that's kind of an issue, but he sort of figures he's just going to light up New York block by block by block by block. And that's how he's going to make his money. But Edison realizes like, oh, I've got a problem. I can't go from one end of Manhattan to another. And he's smart enough to hire people to help him, including Nikolai Tesla, who we won't get in depth on, but I think it's important to note, he works with Edison on this for a period of time. And he basically tells, Tes or Tesla basically tells Edison, 
your only option is to go to alternating current. If you want to go over longer distances, you've got to go to alternating current. And Edison basically blows them off. He says, that's a splendid but utterly impractical idea. And so it's not like Edison doesn't realize that DC isn't working or that it's not practical or scalable. Plenty of people are telling him. And Westinghouse, with being smart and being a man with capital and, and money to invest, he buys up some of Tesla's work and applies it to his alternating machines. So Edison knows he doesn't have the better product, but what Edison has is his name, his reputation, and at the time, the biggest electrical company in the United States. And so he launches a massive public relations war against alternating current. And his biggest selling point is that it's unsustainable and it's super, super dangerous. Edison says, just as certain as death, Westinghouse will kill a customer within six months after he puts us in a system of any size. He has got a new thing and it will require a great deal of experimenting to get it working practically. So basically Edison's like, sure, this thing exists, but it's going to kill you if you put it in your home or your town. So he starts scaring people. It's a scare campaign. And, you know, Edison is motivated by the fact that like, He's already put so much time and energy into trying to build this DC system that he feels invested in seeing it through. And most of his DC units and transport all depend on copper wire and the price of copper is rising and rising. So he's losing a ton of money on district current, but he doesn't want to switch like horses midstream. So he just decides it's better to convince everybody that AC is going to kill you. Now, I like that Westinghouse is not a total chump in this story. Like, he fights back, and he does so with some business tricks, including going to cities like New Orleans that Edison had refused to go market down to. And he basically says, look, I will sell you electricity for pennies on the dollar. He way undercuts Edison so that by the time Edison gets down there, they're like, oh, you want to charge us 10 times what we pay for electricity? No, thank you. We're not dumb. And this is just all getting really under Edison's skin. Westinghouse, though, is going to face some problems, including the fact that electricity can be deadly. You know, electricity is not a toy. I remember that as a kid, right? It's not a toy, the little Louis the Lightning Bug. Yeah, I have no idea what you're talking about. It might have been a Houston thing, maybe not a... I, there's a great quote about something. I'm not going to quote it verbatim because I don't have it written down, but Westinghouse said something. His response to all of this, um, you know, electricity is dangerous was, yes, it is. Just like revolvers and whiskey. Uh, but he's ev everything could be dangerous if you use it incorrectly, which I thought was a great noble response to it. He didn't say, no, no, it's not dangerous. Mine is fine. He said, yes. Because that would be a lie. It would be a lie. <laughs> Uh, he's like, no, you just have to use it correctly, and then we'll be fine, which we are, unless you stick a fork in it. <laughs> Don't stick a fork in it. Louis the Lightning Bug, I just Googled, was actually from the Alabama Power Company, but I remember him at the Houston Rodeo every year, Louis the Lightning Bug. Anyway, electricity can be dangerous, and in the spring of 1888, there happened to be a series of electri electricity-related deaths. There were um, a lot of pole-mounted wires, and we'll put this in the show notes, but if you look at some of these cities at this time, you think we have a lot of power lines now. Um, imagine the late 1880s, literally just line and line and line and, and 
pounds of it. So if a line came down, it was really, really dangerous. And there were a lot of deaths. And Edison leaps on this and he uses this to launch this propaganda campaign against alternating current. He's going to start staging public executions of animals using alternating current to show how dangerous it can be. And then Edison is going to take this a step further. And it starts out, I guess, innocently enough. There's lots of stories circulating about how dangerous electricity can be, how you could be killed instantaneously when you come into contact with these wires and these machines. And some people start to see this as perhaps a more humane way to deal with criminals. And there's a New York dentist, a man by the name of Alfred Southwick, and he is inspired by seeing a drunk dock worker stumble into an electrical generator and be killed instantly. Now he's a dentist and he's thinking, okay, this guy like stumbled into it and was killed immediately. I think if you put them into a chair, gave them the right amount of voltage, we could kill someone, a criminal, in a way that's much more humane than a firing uh, squad or the hangman's noose. And he writes a letter to the New York state government suggesting this, and he writes a letter to Thomas Edison. And New York state politicians are quite interested in this because in my mind, you would think hanging a man to death would be pretty easy, right? Newsome, hang him, the neck breaks, they die. But there had been a series of botched hangings in the 1880s in New York, and they were having trouble executing criminals in a humane manner. So in 1888, the governor of New York appoints a commission and they decide to start exploring based on the dentist Southwick's idea of how to use electricity to kill somebody. And of course the commission goes on this fact-finding mission and they're gonna talk to people in science and law and medicine. And of course at this era, if you wanted to talk to the, the biggest name in science, you would talk to Thomas Edison. Edison, in his weird little, you know, very hard to pin down personality, is opposed to the capital punishment entirely. He doesn't believe in the death penalty, but then he sort of comes back around. So at first he's like, I can't be a part of this. I don't believe in capital punishment. But then he sees the business potential and he comes back and he sort of says, well, look, I don't think that we should have capital punishment, but if we're going to do it, I happen to know that Westinghouse's alternating machines can definitely kill somebody. And he's gonna tell this to the commission, he's gonna tell this to the governor, and he's gonna go to the newspapers. And he's going to say, electricity can kill a man in a 10,000th of a second, but only if it comes from Westinghouse's alternating machines. And he's very clear that it's Westinghouse's invention that's dangerous. So I think this might actually go back to the um, the animals. But at some point, I think it, in the movie, The Current Wars, it's with a horse. Edison did it with multiple animals. Well, no, no. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, though not. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there was something about stray dogs that he would he would purchase. Uh, there is a story floating on the Internet. And, you know, our job is to correct Internet myths. Um Topsy, the circus elephant, was electrocuted or, or killed by electricity. Uh, but this was that was not Edison. It was not part of uh, his PR campaign. So Edison did not electrocute Topsy the elephant. But with the with the horse, what he said was um, 
that uh, there there wasn't a word for killing something via electricity, and he contacted the people at the dictionary, and they proposed different ideas, but he thinks that a, an inventor should have his name on it, which is actually something that is very much Edison. Edison put his name on literally everything he did. Uh, but Edison said, and he proposed, that the, the word should be Westinghoused. So when you killed an animal, or in this case, uh, a criminal, via electricity, it should be, it, the word would be, they Westinghoused him, uh, which is horrible, um, goes along with him being a jerk, but also really good PR, <laughs> or bad PR for Westinghouse, good PR for Edison, to turn his name, uh, both as a person, uh, but also the name of his company, uh, to immediately have people think about death by electricity, um, which I hate Edison for, but you know, that good, good for his goal, I guess. I guess. Yeah. And so the Topsy thing always kind of comes up and it really boils down to Edison wasn't directly involved, but when they electrocuted Topsy, it was because up at, by this point, Edison did choose to demonstrate how dangerous alternating current was by staging these demonstrations for the commission, for the governor of New York, and he frequently used animals, horses, calves, and dogs. And there's one uh, well-documented uh, circumstance where he's demonstrating exactly how this would work for criminals, and he basically lures a dog onto a metal sheet lures it into drinking a little bit from a metal uh, water bowl and then charges it with 6,000 volts, um, which is just cruel. It's just cruel. It's animal cruelty. I don't know how you can be a vegetarian and then be like, I'm just going to electrocute this dog. Like that's such a mental disconnect to me. And it's, it's just a whole mentality. I mean, Edison is constantly asked in the press because this is a big deal. New York State trying to figure out a new way to deal with criminals. And he's asked the best way to come up with a new type of execution. And he says, hire out your criminals as linemen in New York electric lighting companies. And he means Westinghouse companies. That's what he means. Eventually, though, everybody sort of gets on board with the electric chair. They get on board with the idea that you're going to strap a criminal down and you're going to run them through with electricity. And because of Edison's lobbying, the New York state uh, government believes they need alternating machines. Now, of course, Edison isn't going to just hand, you know, he doesn't really uh, advocate for AC, doesn't have AC machines, but he's going to make sure that Westinghouse's machines end up in their hands because Westinghouse refuses. He refuses to sell his invention to purposefully kill a person. And he tells New York State to basically get lost. Edison has a man working for him. He pays him to create this chair, to work on the tech so that it's not Edison directly, but it's basically Edison's money. And then this man manages on the black market, I assume, uh, or through some backhanded deal to buy some of Westinghouse's alternating current machines. So even though Westinghouse refuses to sell them for this purpose, somehow somebody manages to get them. And so here we are, it's 1890. There's a man named William Kemmler. And we're about to get to the part of this episode where you might just wanna, if you're a little sensitive, just be, be forewarned. Kemmler is a bad dude. He's an alcoholic. He's a troublemaker, he's an abusive type, and he, one morning, wakes up super hungover, and he's in a really bad mood, 
and he gets into an argument with his girlfriend or common law wife. She was reported as both. Her name was Tilly Ziegler. They argue. He walks away. He's still really mad about the argument. He goes to the barn. He grabs a hatchet and he murders her. A brutal slaying. He then goes to his next door neighbor and turns himself in. So the police show up. You've got a man covered in blood and a dead woman. This is an open shut case. This man killed Tilly. There's no question about it. The trial goes very quickly because he's clearly guilty. And three days later, he is sentenced to death by execution. And New York has finally secured itself an electric chair. And it is decided that William Kemmler will be the first criminal to be executed with this new device. George Westinghouse is deeply concerned about this. It is not that he believes that Kemmler is innocent or that Kemmler doesn't deserve to have what's coming to him. He does not want to see anything that he's had any role in inventing used to kill this man. So Westinghouse comes to Kemmler's defense. He spends what is estimated to be $100,000 of his own money in 1890 to get this case before the Supreme Court. They're basically arguing that this would be cruel and unusual punishment. The Supreme Court ultimately decides not to hear the case and uh, Westinghouse is out of luck. There's nothing he can do to stop this from happening. This electric chair has been in development for almost nine years. So it is considered good to go. This is, they have tested it. They, uh, they believe this to be the right machine. August 6, 1890, 17 witnesses. Westinghouse is not one of them. He was invited, which I find to be like so odd. And of course he doesn't go. Kemmler is strapped into the chair. He says his final words, gentlemen, I wish you all good luck. I believe I am going to a good place and I am ready to go. They strap him in, they cover his face uh, with a metal restraint and then uh, metal, another piece of metal is put over his bare head. So he's like strapped in, restrained, covered with metal. They are gonna shoot him with a thousand volts for 17 seconds. This was considered enough electricity to induce a quick unconsciousness and a cardiac arrest. The reason they think this is enough is because the day before they brought in a horse, strapped the horse in, shot it with a thousand volts of electricity for 17 seconds and killed it. So they figure if it kills a horse, it'll kill a man. But here's the thing, it's not enough. Kemmler clutches the chair so tightly He's clenching his fists that there's blood trickling down from his hands. He looks as though he is dead. They call the time of death and then they hear a shrieking sound and a man in the witness box yells, great God, he's alive. And they realize he is still breathing and he's struggling with consciousness. Now, I don't know how you would react in this moment. I really don't. But a lot of people are like, throw the switch again, just, just keep chugging him full of electricity. But these machines back then, they couldn't just get the charge back right away. So it takes a little time for the machine to build the charge. So they're watching this man truly just dangle between life and death and people are horrified. People are getting ill and sick witnessing this. They tried it a second time 
2,000 volts. Blood vessels start to rupture under his skin and bleed. Some witnesses say that he caught fire. It was probably just uh, the shirt that he was wearing, but then his skin is starting to burn and there's a terrible stench filling the room. It ultimately takes eight terrifying and torturous minutes for William Kemmler to die. And I am not, as I've said before, a constitutional scholar, but I think if you were going to try to find an example of cruel and unusual punishment, it was what happened on this day. There's nothing humane about what happens to this man. Westinghouse later says, it was a brutal affair. They could have done better using an ax. Edison takes kind of a different approach to this debacle. He basically says everybody was overenthusiastic, and that was the problem. He assures people the chair works. It's going to work better in the future. We know now that this is fine. Um, and right about the same time, this is when Topsy, the circus elephant, is electrocuted using this technique. And I think that's where Edison often gets drawn into the, the Topsy you know, story, uh, because it happens so close to all of this. Now, at the end of the day, Kemmler is killed. It, it's terrible, but the lesson from this is with some tweaking, the electric chair is going to work and many other states are going to adopt the electric chair as the preferred form of execution for criminals. I do think there is a little bit of comeuppance for Edison because as we get into the early 1890s, Edison's stockholders start getting tired of his shenanigans. They get tired of the PR. They get tired of the constant back and forth and his ego. And eventually he is forced out of a controlling share of his own company. So Edison's basically forced out of Edison Electric and it is gonna become General Electric, which still exists today. So GE is what has become of the Edison Electric Company. And to add insult to injury, in 1893, Chicago is hosting the World's Fair. Edison desperately wants to be the person to light the World's Fair. He really wants General Electric to get the contract. And Westinghouse is, <laughs> I don't think so, buddy. George Westinghouse makes it his personal mission to light the World's Fair just to spite Thomas Edison, and so he underbids, and I mean, like 50% of what he was actually going to spend, he, he is going to go into personal debt doing this, but he does it just because he wants to show up Thomas Edison, and it's the biggest showcase for alternating current that you could possibly imagine. He strings up electricity all throughout Chicago for the better part of a year. The city is illuminated day and night, and it sells alternating current better than anything else. Edison dies in 1931. He has like an insane legacy today. It is crazy to me how much we love Thomas Edison. I don't think we study that many inventors in school at all, but if you only study one inventor, it's probably Thomas Edison. Technically, however you want to determine this number is, is questionable, but technically he is considered to hold 1,093 patents. How much of those patents or his own inventions is certainly debatable. That was a record he held until 2003, which is kind of nuts. Almost 100 years. Do we know who beat it? I do. He was, uh, I think, a Japanese inventor uh, who then moved to the United States. 
I um I always say this with Thomas Jefferson that he wasn't as much of an inventor as he was an innovator. So as much as I dislike personally Thomas Edison, I do want to give him some credit because even with the patents that he bought or stole from other people, he usually didn't take exactly what was invented and say, oh, I did this. He did make them better. He made them more commercially viable or he improved on them in some way. But um, I personally don't think it is correct to say that he invented from scratch 1,093 things. Or even he could have invented far more than that, patented from scratch 1,093 things. But he did have a hand in all of them. So I'll give him a little, a little credit where it's due. And there's a lot of numbers out there for Edison if you want to be like, there's uh, the number 512 patents, which is supposed to be the patents that are accepted worldwide. And that Edison was the first to hold that patent. Um, and it, it is incredible. It's amazing to look at the scope of his work. But I think that so often we talk about Edison in a really narrow kind of frame of mind. And we don't talk about how he got there. We don't talk about the amount of work he stole, the amount of work that he manipulated, the way he played the press. Um, but it is interesting to see that he gets a little bit of that pushback even while he's alive. And he ends up dying not at the head of his own company which says something. I feel like, and based on the way he is portrayed in a lot of pop culture and writing, uh, his ultimate goal was to be the first at something. I, I did this the best first. Uh, and not necessarily to leave any sort of legacy regarding it or any improvement. It was just he, he wanted his name on it first. Uh, and Obviously, I did not know the man, but that is how things uh, seem to have been uh, reported as to his ultimate goal, which is why I like Westinghouse far better, because that was not Westinghouse's goal. Westinghouse's main goal in life, it seemed, again, did not know him, though he is very much on my list of people I would invite to a dinner party if I could invite a whole bunch of people living or dead. I want to talk to the dude who was 15, fought in four years of the Civil War, and survived. Because statistically, that is bonkers. I just watched it, which is why I keep going back to this. <laughs> but there's a scene in The Current Wars uh, where he kind of escapes uh, what would have been guaranteed death uh, by being super clever. But I won't say it because I know you haven't seen it yet. Uh, I did look that up. The, the, that scene is not true. Uh, but I will give the writers of the movie credit because it really seems like it's something Westinghouse would have done. Uh, do you know what the Westinghouse Electric Company is today? It is technically part of CBS. Am I correct? Yeah, Viacom CBS. Viacom CBS. So Westinghouse um, has sort of this big career high in 1893 with the Chicago World's Fair. He's going to continue growing and growing his company. And I think one thing I really like about Westinghouse is he always is sort of looking ahead. And so he's always like, he gets into electricity and then he gets into this thing. And then he starts to see how the home is changing and he dabbles in appliances. And, and so he really sort of is a little bit of everything thing. Um, and he works all the way up until about 1907. By 1907, his health is not in such a good place. And there's a financial recession in this time period. And so he'll die in 1914. But he basically works up to about the last few years of his life. At the time of his death, he held about 300 patents, which I think is impressive. It's hard to compare it to a number like Edison's, which is so staggering. But I think that Westinghouse's 300 are more earned. 
They're a strong 300. It's a strong 300. And as someone who has patented nothing, 300 is very impressive to me. And he owned about 60 companies. He was a very savvy businessman. And he understood that one company can't do everything well. So you needed different companies to focus on different strengths. And yes, the Westinghouse Electric Company would change hands and ultimately become what is now, I think, Viacom CBS. So everything's owned by, by everything. Or everything's owned by like the same five companies. Yeah, I, I think that's true in so many industries, but we don't need to get into that. <laughs> and then one of my favorite things about Westinghouse is that um, although he's not as well remembered today, for us in D.C., there's a lot of opportunity to talk about him. The Blaine Mansion on Massachusetts Avenue is still standing. And even if I'm not doing my dark side of DuPont tour where we talk about the electric chair and the scarier stuff, even if I'm just doing an Embassy Row tour, I always mention Westinghouse and his his work and his contributions outside of the Blaine Mansion. And Westinghouse today is buried at Arlington National Cemetery. So he's originally buried in Woodlawn in Brooklyn, but then uh, shortly thereafter, he was moved to Arlington, which makes sense because it's a Civil War cemetery and he's a Civil War veteran. Another Westinghouse legacy that you and I don't get to enjoy very much being tour guides and uh, public service sector, uh, but when Westinghouse was you know, this big industrial titan, uh, is six day work week was how it worked, but not for his, not for his employees. They had a half day on a Saturday. So he was very big into the five day work, which week. was innovative back then. I don't know what that's like, but personally, what is, what is a weekend? I understood that reference. I know. I, I was, as I said it, I realized I've said that twice in this, I've said it in two other podcast episodes. We say it a so lot. We do say it a lot. I um, I think the biggest thing I want people to take away is that Edison wanted his name on everything and to be the first at like anything that he did. And uh, he didn't he didn't always go about it in the most noble of ways. He cared about his legacy, but he didn't care how he accomplished it as long as he was remembered. But Westinghouse, on the other hand, he, uh, he thought it was more important that his legacy improve the lives of other people. Uh, his most enduring quote, I actually have this one written down. If someday they say of me that in my work I have contributed something to the welfare and happiness of my fellow man, I shall be satisfied. And I feel like Westinghouse just cared more about doing it right and just and the fair way. I mean, in the end, they got what they wanted. Westinghouse brought electricity not just to the rich, but to everyone, and everyone remembers Edison's name. The kicker for me as a lover of George Westinghouse is that he was awarded the highest honor by the, associate, uh, by the Association of Electrical Engineers, uh, which is the Edison Medal. how the first electric chair was invented. And I think no matter what your stance might be on something like capital punishment, what happens to William Kemmler is terrifying to me. And the 17 people that witnessed that episode, if you go dig into newspapers and you see, uh, you know, several of these people talk to the press, it was such a harrowing moment in our history. And we don't really tend to talk about this, but it's, 
it's scary and audacious and, and insane that this is something that we sort of allowed to happen. I always, when I like tell this story or, or listen to you talk about it, the image in my mind is that scene from the Green Mile, which I had to leave the movie theater from because I feel like they were sadly similar. Yeah, yeah. I had not made that connection like in my mind, but as soon as you said that, absolutely. But now you will every time. Every time. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry to everybody listening to this. <laughs> so that's the electric chair. This is our October episodes. We're going to be coming at you with more episodes this month dealing with death, with scandal, with spooky things. We're going to be talking about some haunted sites in Washington, D.C., some of our favorite cemeteries. So you're going to want to make sure that you're subscribing, no matter how you listen to this podcast. If it's on Apple, iTunes, if it's on uh, Spotify, anywhere, make sure you're subscribing. We love your reviews. Your reviews are so helpful to us. We love your feedback. You can always email us, tourguidetellall at gmail.com, or follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the episode, questions you have, or suggestions for future episodes we got a great email from a listener um, who both suggested a future topic uh, but also suggested that we should call it pitch to the pod oh so i love that hashtag right? pitch to the pod please so if you oh i yes definitely a hashtag so if you would like to pitch to the pod a future episode um it could be something we already know about and are super excited to talk about. could be something that we are super excited to research, which happens to be this episode. I'm looking forward to it. For the right amount, guys, I'll talk about anything. <laughs> I mean, what else am I going to do right now? And you know what? Um, I think this might be the right moment. I will mention a very good friend of the pod, our friend Kat, who was one of our first patrons ever. She sent me a great suggestion, which is that we should uh, have some, some drinks and live tweet national treasure. So I, I have to say, I think we're going to make it happen sometime before I the end of the year. could do that. Did you know, and I am so mad at Disney right now, that they did not make a national treasure three because Disney could not figure out how to make a theme park right out of it. Now that I'm saying this out loud, that might have been an Onion article <laughs> because it seems like an Onion article, but I'm, I'm, I feel like it was a viable source. <laughs> they haven't made a theme park right out of one or two. No, but, like, that's why they're like, oh, we can't keep going with this franchise. There's no point to it because we can't make it into a theme park. First of all, the Imagineers could make a theme park right out of anything. That's very true. And also, so in the before times, right before everything happened, they said they were making a National Treasure 3. But then everything happened and movie productions have shut down, so who knows? So I had this terrifying fear. Like, it stopped me in my tracks. What are we going to watch for the next quarantine like are, haven't they stopped making television shows and movies honestly i still have so much tv and movies to watch i hope we i watched the current war yesterday was it worth watching was it good yeah i really liked it okay. i do not know why everyone was well i do know why everyone was against it I think a lot of I think a lot of the bad reviews though also came from the fact that like when it was first released at the festivals and a lot of the film critics saw it it was not the original cut it was like a studio cut and then the director got to go back and recut it and it's almost always better with the director's cut and that's what got released yeah. but most of the film reviews are from the first drop of it oh i mean we've been waiting and I, waiting to get it on disc i uh very rarely agree with critics anyway yeah. um Same. but no i really liked it a lot so you're going to leave not liking Edison and liking Westinghouse as much as as much as I do um, in, a, in a great visual way, because 
Benedict Cumberbatch is in it. He plays Edison, but you can all-time great looking. Michael Shannon plays George Westinghouse. He looks a lot like him in that it's, movie too. I did I, think that they did a good, good job with also like the production design. And Tesla does a good. It looks like Tesla is good casting. Good casting all around. So yes, pitch to the pod, cat. Your national treasure idea is gonna happen. If you want me to get drunk and talk about Nicolas Cage, I'm going to do it. So that's going to happen. And we'll talk about the declaration and all kinds of other good stuff. Mostly, though, we just want to thank everybody who listens and especially our patrons. Our patrons, keep this going. Uh, This is still very much um, our lifeline. We're still waiting for the tourism industry to, to rebound and come back. So you're keeping us employed and that's amazing. So consider being a patron. There's a lot of cool perks. We're going to have some fun stuff dropping. We'll be recording another live, uh, episode soon just for our patrons. So don't be afraid to drop a couple bucks a month to us. Help keep the podcast alive. Uh, as much as I love enjoying talking to you in general, but also about Westinghouse Edison, I'm excited for this to end because I've been trying not to eat my Ben and Jerry's because I realized you could see me while I was eating it and I can't share with you and I felt bad. So my melted ice cream is on the table. The listeners want to know what flavor. I am half baked all the way, but the nearest 7-Eleven didn't have any. So this is chocolate fudge brownie. Which I is... love half baked. Thank you guys for listening. <laughs> We'll be back uh, soon to talk about uh, lots of other scary, spooky things. I'm Becca. And this is Candon. You've been listening to Tour Guide Tell All, a podcast for history nerds from the guise of Free Tours by Foot, Washington, D.C. Tour Guide Tell All is researched, written, edited, produced, and all of that by Becca Grawl, Rebecca Fackner, Dan King, and me, Candon Arsniega with special assistance this week by my good friends, Ben and Jerry.